your kingdom come. That's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But what does the kingdom of God look like? What does it feel like? What is it like to live under the rule of God's king? Well, our passage this morning is going to help us with this. Our passage in Romans is going to give us a picture of kingdom life. So turn with me to Romans chapter 15. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1142. And in the large print, 1765. Paul has just been speaking in chapter 15 about his own, what he calls his priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. And now he continues in verse 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have done, what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, and that you will assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is God's word. And this passage shows us that in God's kingdom, God's power is at work through individual ministry. And God's blessing is experienced in fellowship with others. First of all, in verses 17 to 21, God's power is at work through individual ministry. In these verses, Paul describes his own work for God. 
But notice how he describes it. It's what Christ has accomplished through me. Verse 17. Therefore I will glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me and leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. What Christ has accomplished. We know that Paul worked incredibly hard. And he worked towards clear goals and targets. In Colossians he says, I strenuously contend for those goals. And Paul's claims about his hard work are backed up by what we see in his life. We see it in the New Testament. But here we see that Paul, the hard worker, has a clear understanding about the results of his work. He has said and done plenty. And as we know from the New Testament, the results have been significant. But Paul knows that the results are what Christ has accomplished through him. Paul believes each one of us needs to be active for God's kingdom. And we need to see that when good things happen, it's what Christ has accomplished. Or as he puts it in verse 19, it's by the power of the Spirit of God. And if we read those two statements and ask, well, which one is it, Paul? Is it the Spirit or is it Christ the Son? The answer is both. Christ works through the Spirit who works through us. The Bible does not tell us God saves some people to be spectators in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is not like a professional football match. A football match has been described as 22 people badly in need of rest being watched by 22,000 people badly in need of exercise. But the kingdom of God is not meant to be like that. Life in the kingdom, we learn from Paul, is not a passive life. It involves each one of us serving God, saying things and doing things, wanting to see things accomplished. But we also learn that alongside those goals and that activity for the kingdom, we're to have a humility when it comes to the credit for what we do. And not the kind of humility that says, yes, I did well, didn't I? But let's not talk about it. The humility we see from Paul here is not just an effort to be polite or to act humble. It's just realism from Paul. He knows it really was Christ working. He knows that only supernatural power can bring men and women from darkness to light. But notice what Paul does next. After mentioning God's power, he then starts talking about my ambition. Look again in the middle of verse 19. So, from Jerusalem... All the way around to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. 
Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So the same Paul who says it's all God's work also says, here's my ambition. And here's what I've done to go after that ambition. Now, selfish ambition is not a Christian trait. But ambition for God's kingdom is. So as we talk about ambition here, we're talking about ambition motivated by God's glory and the good of his kingdom. That's holy ambition. And it's a good thing. Paul says his specific ambition was pioneer missionary work, taking the good news about Jesus to new territories. And if we ask, well, how did Paul come to have that particular ambition? Some of it, I'm sure, was a sense that God had given him that work to do. It was God's calling for him. In fact, that's certainly true. Some of it also was the encouragement Paul got from other believers to do this work. Some of it was his own burning heart for that ministry. And some of it was simply the need for the work to get done. Paul knows if no one went to new territories, how would they ever hear the good news? One of the reasons for Paul's ambition was simply that he saw the need. And his personal circumstances put him in a position to tackle it. He was a single man. He could do the constant traveling that was involved. And so as we read this, we can be very clear. Paul is not saying every Christian should have the same ambition he has or the same area of service that he has. Back in chapter 12, he said, we have different gifts. Those gifts make us suited to different kinds of service. And our circumstances and opportunities play into that too. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul says about the church in Corinth, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. What he meant was, I was the one who took the gospel to the city of Corinth. And God used me to start the church there. But then I moved on to new territories. And God used a man called Apollos to help the church develop and grow in maturity. Apollos didn't do the pioneer work. He did do the follow-up work. Both are necessary. So Paul doesn't think we're all supposed to do the same thing. He believes in a division of labor in God's kingdom. There are different spheres of service in the kingdom. And God gives each of us gifts and life circumstances that suit us to different spheres. Now, of course, if we take this division of labor too far, it can turn into an excuse for refusing to serve God in ways that we could serve him. Pioneer work was Paul's main ambition, and that was probably what he was most gifted for. But he did plenty of other things too. 
There were plenty of times when he simply responded to the need in front of him, even when it wasn't pioneer work. He often revisited churches that he had planted. He wrote to them. Often he put a lot of effort into helping them with their growing pains. And we'll see later in this passage, he's going to try to visit the church in Rome, even though he didn't plant that church. In chapter 1, he said, I want to give you some spiritual gift to make you strong. His planned visit to Rome, and in fact, this blockbuster letter that he writes to Rome, cannot be classed as pioneer work. But Paul sees the need and the opportunity And he serves the church in Rome. Even though that service is outside of his main ambition. So as we apply this to ourselves, if you think your main gifting is in a particular area of ministry, it's good to recognize that, but don't get so fixated on it that you end up ignoring other ways you could be serving. If there's no opening for you to do what you feel gifted or enthusiastic about, don't take that as an excuse not to serve at all. Factor in the needs that you see in front of you and then ask yourself, what is my ambition with regard to God's kingdom? Remember, we're talking about holy ambition here, not selfish ambition. As you look at the needs in front of you and your own circumstances and your gifts, as you think about how God might be calling you and as you notice how others are encouraging you, as you consider all of that, what is your ambition? Maybe you already have your ambition and you are pursuing it for God's glory. But if that's not the case for you, then look around. Look at what goes on in the church week by week. Think about what isn't going on that could go on. Look at the various needs of church members. Look around and pray about what you see or what you don't see. Ask God to guide you in your ambition. Come and talk to the elders about it. Maybe your ambition will be to find one person you can help and encourage or one activity you can play a part in and help at. Maybe you could commit to pray every day for the unsaved family of church members. Pray for them by name. I know Steve has been helping the youth discipleship group think this through for themselves. But let's all think it through. And it doesn't have to be directly connected to this church. A couple of weeks ago we heard from Rose about the Christian union she's helping to lead. So what about your school? What about your workplace? Could you start a prayer time there? Could you invite someone in to give a gospel talk? 
Maybe at lunchtime. Maybe it's been tried before and it didn't work. Could you have the ambition to try it again? The challenge for each of us is let's look and pray and ask and then find a personal ambition for God's kingdom, a way to serve the kingdom. That's how God's power works. Christ accomplishes things through his instruments. That's us. That's the individual perspective. Every Christian is to be a kingdom worker with a ministry. But now in our passage we come to what we could call the collective aspect. Because for all of his individual ambition for God's kingdom, Paul never lets himself be isolated from Christian fellowship. He knows he needs fellowship and he seeks it out. Paul knows that God's blessing is experienced in fellowship with others. We'll see in these verses, Paul didn't just nod his head to the idea of fellowship. He makes sure he has it because he knows he needs it. Paul never lets his individual ministry ambition turn him into a lone ranger as a Christian. He says here that his pioneer work work has kept him for years from getting to Rome. But now he says he's planted churches in the key areas between Jerusalem and Elycrium. That's the area around present-day Albania and Croatia. So on the map, it's a big arc from Jerusalem here up to here. Paul has traveled extensively in that area. He's established churches in the main centers of population. And he knows that those churches can now carry on the work themselves. Paul is following his ambition and he's setting his sights on going further west to Spain. And he says he hopes to visit Rome on the way to Spain. But look what comes before his trip to Rome. Look at verse 25. Now, however... I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. We know from the New Testament this is a collection Paul has been working on for quite a while. We hear a lot about it in his letters and especially 2 Corinthians. What's going on is that as Paul plants new churches... He helps them understand that they're not isolated churches. They're part of a wider body, the worldwide Church of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways Paul gets that point across to them is by encouraging local churches to give to their brothers and sisters in other places. At this time, there is a particular need in the Jerusalem church. The situation seems to be there are so many poor in the Jerusalem church that the church just can't provide for them all. And Paul is taking money to Jerusalem from the other churches. 
Some of the churches who gave to this collection were relatively well off. But he says in 2 Corinthians, some of the churches gave out of their extreme poverty. Sometimes you and I are tempted to think, I will give someday when I can afford to give. But when we take that approach, we'll probably never feel that we can afford it. 2 Corinthians tells us that in this collection, even the churches in extreme poverty gave with rich generosity. God's blessing comes to us in fellowship with other Christians. And one way his blessing comes is through Christians giving and receiving. In this instance, it was the believers in Jerusalem who are going to receive a financial blessing. But you'll notice this is not just a one-way thing. Look again at verse 27. Paul says they were pleased to do it. That's the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And indeed, they owe it to them. That's to Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. This sharing is a two-way thing. The Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia are sharing financially with Jerusalem, but they've already received spiritually from Jerusalem. How did that happen? Well, the news of God's Savior, who was from the Jews, that good news of the gospel, came to the Gentiles from Jewish preachers, Paul and the other apostles. Now, the Gentiles cannot share back in quite the same way, obviously. But Paul says they're pleased to share in the way they can share, with finances in this case. You and I will have a similar experience of Christian fellowship if we will enter into it. We'll find that we have opportunities to give God's blessing to others and we will receive his blessing from others. And the way that we bless others may be quite different from the blessings we receive, just like it was for these different churches. But further down in the passage, Paul mentions a concern he has about this whole thing. He says in verse 31, Pray that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Why might it not be favorably received? Simply because it's going to involve humility if believers from a Jewish background are going to acknowledge that they need the Gentile believers. The Jerusalem believers have been in the position of the ones who give. And there can be a certain sense of achievement that comes along with that. Maybe even a certain sense of superiority. But it's going to take humility to receive. To acknowledge they need help from their brothers and sisters who are much younger in the faith. (coughs) 
And for some of us too, it is a challenge to learn to receive. Some of us are very good at giving, but we find it hard to receive. And yet the New Testament picture of fellowship involves sharing to and fro. And so if you have trouble receiving from others, then ask yourself this. Is it really because I have a mistaken sense of self-sufficiency? Could it be that I'm too proud to admit I need help? As you and I enter into fellowship, one thing it does is it shows us we're not self-sufficient. We need God to supply our needs, and he does it usually through our brothers and sisters. So receiving from others doesn't mean that you have failed somehow. It's part of being human. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden... God made Adam a human helper because he saw that he needed a human helper. If we can't accept help from others, it may be a sign we don't think we need God's help either. Another blessing of fellowship is that we have others around us to share the hard work of praying with us. Verse 28. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Paul has been used by God in many powerful ways. He's mentioned them earlier in this passage. But he doesn't feel self-sufficient. He urges these brothers and sisters to help him. And the words he uses gives us, give us an important insight into prayer. He says, join me in my struggle. And the word he uses gives us our English word, agonize. Paul knows that prayer is a spiritual conflict. It's demanding work. And it's vital work. So if we find ourselves not up for the work of prayer... What does that say about us as a fellowship? If a difficulty in receiving from others points to maybe self-sufficiency, what does a lack of concern about prayer say about us? Maybe it shows we don't really sense our need for God's power. Paul has seen God's power before plenty of times. And he knows he desperately needs fresh supplies of it. And so he calls the church to agonize with him in prayer. 
Paul knew that prayer is kingdom work. It has to be central to our life as a church. It has to be central to our fellowship. So if you haven't been in the habit of meeting on Thursdays to pray, I would encourage you to think seriously about making it a habit and come, when you come, ready to work. Prayer is a way to bless others and to be blessed as we struggle together in prayer for God's kingdom. And Paul even gives us some prayer requests in verse 31. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. We've already looked at the second prayer request. And we know from the book of Acts that that prayer was answered positively. Acts 21 tells us Paul and his co-workers were received warmly by the church in Jerusalem. God gave that church the humility they needed to receive. What about the request for safety from unbelievers? Well, God answered that prayer in quite an unusual way. Paul was kept safe, but only because the Romans arrested him when a crowd in Jerusalem was trying to kill him. That's a reminder God often answers prayer in unexpected ways. But that's part of the adventure of prayer. We are participating in a big thing when we pray. A big conflict where God is working out his plans. And he is involving us in the whole process. Finally, look at the blessing Paul is looking forward to when he gets to Rome. In verse 31, he says he hopes to come and be refreshed in their company. Maybe we don't make enough of this, but one of the great blessings of Christian community is refreshment. The words be refreshed could be translated as find rest. God made us with a need for rest. And one of the ways he supplies rest is in Christian company. Back in verse 24, Paul said he hopes to get to Rome and enjoy their company for a while. So he must be pretty excited about this refreshment in order to mention it twice. And no doubt when he gets there, he plans to study the Bible with them and he plans to pray with them. And he will also just enjoy being with them. Being with people who love the same Savior that he loves. Being with people who have the same hope for the future that he has. Who have the same desire to turn away from evil and rejoice in the truth. When we get together as brothers and sisters, we don't always have to be intense together. Surely if there's one place we can relax, it's with those who are going to share the new heaven and earth with us. Surely we can let down our guard with our eternal family. 
I know sometimes we talk in quite a negative way about holy huddles. And I think I understand the point. We are called to go into the world and make disciples. We're not called to just circle up the wagons and stay safe all the time. But when we have been out there day after day in a world that loves darkness rather than light, Christian fellowship is like coming in from the cold. It refreshes us. And God designed it to do that. Paul himself is looking forward to that refreshment. And no one could ever accuse Paul of living in a holy huddle. But he does know the value of temporary holy huddles. They give us rest from the spiritual battle that we face out there. So I hope that you value the refreshment of Christian company. Maybe you're not used to thinking of it that way, but I hope you begin to think of it that way. I hope your home group makes time to enjoy one another's company alongside the Bible study and the prayer. We are called to work together in prayer and service and witness. And we're also expected to rest together too. Maybe in your home group you can talk about ways to do that. I know some of you fall asleep in your home groups. That's not what I have in mind at all. Other ways to rest together. Maybe that only happens in my home group. Other ways that we can rest together and enjoy each other's company. And notice, though, how Paul ends in verse 33. He reminds us God himself is the God of peace. And so the refreshment we experience in Christian fellowship is overflowing to us from the God of peace. We've heard Paul speak here about his own life and his own ministry. And really, he's given us a picture of kingdom life. And it is a full, rounded life. We work, we share, we pray, and we are refreshed. And in all of these ways, God is at work through us. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing together, let love be found among us. And then let your 